Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin from Michigan Law in Chicago, joined today by my co-hosts, Jim Marty and Rob Hunt. Uh, we will get to both of them in one second. We have an absolutely tremendous show today. Uh, we've got some great uh, things to announce. We've got some uh, great music to listen to, and we are highlighting a show that we think is uh one of the better ones played by uh, the Grateful Dead from the uh, Henry J. Kaiser Auditorium in uh, Berkeley, uh, California. And uh, it was a great night of breakouts. It was a great night of uh, really good tunes. But for the intro, uh, Dan, uh, what have you got for us? some loving uh awesome the dead played as well as anybody and uh they had just broken it out the uh new year's eve before uh this is a show from november of 1985 that we're going to be talking about uh but the new year's eve show 84 into 85 which i was able to attend at the uh uh, San Francisco Civic Center, I believe, was when they broke out Give Me Some Lovin' for the first time, and it just became a staple after that. We will get to it in a few minutes, though, but pay, uh, stay tuned because we've got some other great samples off of that show that'll be uh, very fun to listen to. However, let me just first say hey to Jim. How are you doing today, Jim, out in uh, lovely Colorado? Beautiful Colorado. We woke up to a little dusting of snow this morning. Excellent, excellent. And Rob Hunt from hopefully sunny and warm Southern California. Yeah, I went, no, I haven't been outside in three days. So <laughs> I haven't glued to my office for the last couple of days, you know, with my headphones on, listening to a lot of Jerry and uh, and writing a lot of um, a lot of fun legal stuff. Well, you know, I find that helps me uh, get inspired to write my legal stuff well, so as, as well. So uh, I can uh, understand exactly what you're saying. Um, a couple of things on the marijuana side I think we should get into first, and then we'll dive over to the other side and talk about all sorts of fun stuff. Some of these stories we've talked about before, some of them are, are new or, or come in the form of updates. And uh, the Republican-sponsored uh, bill on the federal level uh, to legalize uh, marijuana uh, was something that Rob had mentioned last week. And uh, I think it's now gone pretty much, Rob, wouldn't you say, from being uh, something that was being discussed to becoming a reality uh, in the sense that it's now uh, been put in motion by its sponsors. Yeah, it's definitely in full motion. Uh, again, I don't think it has a snowball's chance in hell of getting passed through the Senate. But, uh, you know, it is interesting. That this is the first time we've actually seen a GOP-sponsored bill that's, you know, probably going to make it through the House. So it's you know, nice to see that there's you know, more sentiment to move the, uh, the industry forward. But, you know, unless you get 60 votes in the Senate, it doesn't really make much difference. Jim, what do you know about it? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I've glanced at some of the pl- press releases. Uh, there's definitely a lot to like there. Um, it appears they're going to still leave it up to the states to regulate cannabis as they please, which is good news for the industry as we know it now. Uh, keeps our existing uh, state license structure in place. Um, so for our, the existing businesses, uh, it's good news. I also like the um, the 3% federal excise tax. It's nice and low. It's not a 20% tax or anything crazy like that. So uh, much like liquor, uh, you want it almost to be invisible, so you don't even know that you're paying it. So a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, let's hope it uh, makes it through. I agree with Rob. The uh, House looks good. The Senate's going to be a tougher battle. But who knows? Well, you're, what, you're right, and that's a great analysis from both of you, and I think that's exactly what we've seen, uh, that even when we've had bills that have come out of the House uh, with overwhelming support, both the uh, Safe Banking Act and the States' Rights Act, Uh, Various other bills, including uh, Senator Schumer's most recent attempt at a federal legislative bill. Uh, The House all seems to be on the same page with this, which is the country likes marijuana. So, you know, it doesn't matter if we can't agree on most other issues. At least we can agree on this one. Uh, keep everyone happy and, quite frankly, make some good money for the country and for the states, which can only be a good thing if the money's going there instead of into the pockets of the black marketeers. But for some reason, the Senate is just a highly politicized body of people. And whether it's a bill coming from the right that the left wants to block or vice versa, uh, we've seen a lot of that over the last few years. And it's really unfortunate. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, it's important for the industry to be able to get a bill passed on whatever level it is to show that the federal government is truly behind the industry. I think that's the best thing we can do 
for investments and for all sorts of other things to, to build this industry as big as we can build it. But, you know, gridlock is gridlock and politicians and their ways, you know, date back far longer than any of us, even you, Jim. So, you know, we hear that and we have to, you know, try and figure it out. And I, I, I'm just not good enough at reading the secret signs, you know, from all the various legislators, you know, to be able to say where it's going to go. But I think that Rob's, uh, comparison to a snowball uh, down under is, is probably about as uh, accurate as we're going to hear right now. You know, and if it's a shame, it's a shame, but hopefully, you know, this won't be the end of it for marijuana on the federal level. And, you know, maybe the two parties on this one can sit down and figure out a way to take the best of both bills and come up with something that, uh, you know, both Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell can sign off on. And, you know, maybe we can get some forward traction, but we'll see. And it's certainly a story we'll be following both Schumer's bill and the Republican bill and anything else that goes on out there and hopefully have positive results on that. And, you know, as we switch over to the to the business side of this, it just seems to me, guys, that, you know, the things that we're about to talk about right now, you know, five years ago, if you'd be telling me we'd be having this conversation that we're about to have, I would say it could be many industries, but certainly not the marijuana industry. And the fact that we're having this conversation now about some of the things that are going on in the marijuana industry is just astounding to me. But it's even more astounding that with all of that financial success and all of that acceptance by the market, right? The, the marketplace has spoken, marijuana is in, but the, the politicians just can't get behind it. Rob, what's going on with our earnings reports right now for companies? Well, the last week or so, you've seen almost every one of the major Canadian and American companies report. Some have been earnings misses, some have been earnings beats. Uh, it's certainly been you know, a fair amount of attention paid to the industry, especially in light of the fact that earnings seasons directly coincided with the release of this new Republican-led effort. So after eight months of you know, pretty major slide that has happened from you know, February of this year, mid-March of this year, until you know, about a week ago, you know, a lot of companies lost as much as you know, 60 to 80% of their market cap um, during that period. And for the first time, they came kind of roaring back. I mean, not, not back to where their highs were, but certainly well off their lows. So you saw about a you know twenty to thirty percent pop across the board for most of these companies, only to watch them slide in the last couple of days again. Um, you know, not necessarily based on anything more than the the sentiment was gone. A lot of people that got into the market at the bottom uh, decided to take profits. Others that were you know sitting short were were selling harder into the um, into the sell off. So it's a uh, yeah, it's been really interesting to watch. The volume's been great the last couple of days, but it certainly piqued everyone's attention again into the cannabis sector. Um, all of the major pundits on CNBC and Bloomberg and you know Fox Business are talking about cannabis again. Anytime that happens, you definitely start seeing more and more retail investors pour into the sector. So it, it, it's been relatively good, and you know you've certainly seen a wave of M and A be announced in the last couple of days as well. So you know things are definitely hot in the in, in the cannabis sector right now. What are some of the big M and As that have been going on out there? Highlight a few of them for us. Sure. Uh, let's see. We've uh, we've seen Jushi just uh, acquire a company called New Leaf in Nevada for $62.5 million. Uh, Colorado's uh, hometown guys, uh, Schwazi, who used to be uh, Medicine Man Technologies, Andy Williams' old company, um, just acquired uh, a couple different places in, in Colorado. They just uh, acquired one that I know uh, Jim's pretty familiar with uh, called Smoking Gun Apothecary in Glendale, but then they just followed it up with uh, announcing the purchase of Emerald Fields, which is best known for having uh, a store in Manitou Springs just outside of Glenwood Springs, which is the closest place to Glenwood Springs that sells recreational adult use cannabis, whereas whereas, um, uh, Colorado Springs only sells medicinal, so anyone that wants to get adult use, the closest place they can go is Manitou Springs. This little tiny store just does gangbuster business. So they, they, they bought that place for $29 million. So that was a pretty big one. And uh, let's see, uh, Slang, which is um, you know, a company that also has Colorado ties, as they bought Open Vape years ago. Uh, Slang just got a $17.5 million loan out of TrueLeaf, which is a Florida-based uh, multi-state operator, you know, by revenue the biggest one in the country right now. Uh, Air Wellness just received $150 million in capital. I can't remember who provided it to him, but I can find out pretty quickly. Uh, but Air is another multi-state operator that came out as a SPAC a few years ago. So that's a... Um, you know, relatively large, um, relatively large senior note. So, you know, it's not just the acquisitions, it's the, um, it's the ability to access better capital that allows these guys to go out and do these acquisitions, which is happening pretty quickly. And that's, that's all in the last week. You know, if you told me that those four transactions happened in any other week, as you said, five years ago, those would be the five biggest headlines we've ever seen. And now it's just, you know, the week before Thanksgiving. Well, Jim, what are your thoughts on all of this financial stuff that's been going on in the industry? 
Yeah, we've certainly done some work on those Colorado companies over in the past. Uh, good, solid uh, operators. Good for them, getting a nice exit. Yeah, we do mostly work in the privately held world uh, as opposed to the public markets. Mergers and acquisitions for the small players. And when I say small, I'm talking sales of three to five million up to 10 to 20 million on the high end. And uh, yeah, they're getting nice exits, you know, usually around one times revenue, which is a lot less than these publicly traded deals. But for people who have been in it for five or 10 years and built a nice business and are ready to take an exit, it's, it's good for them. If I've had a couple of clients walk away with um, the better part of $10 million this year. So we're very busy doing mergers and acquisitions and figuring out their tax bill when they do take that $10 million exit. Uh, how much of it goes to Uncle Sam is our job. So uh, a lot of people trying to get these deals done in the last few weeks of the year. I bet. And, uh, you know, for those of us that, that help them through with these things, it, it makes our holiday seasons very busy, but also very profitable, I hope. But uh, yeah, you know, Jim, again, I just remember sitting at that show in Seattle in 2013 when you were doing your presentation and talking about some projections of the cannabis industry going forward. And as I sit here right now, I can't remember exactly what some of those numbers were, but they seemed huge to me, you know, and now we're seeing that those numbers really were very small in terms of, you know, what's actually starting to pan out. Does it surprise you that it's grown this big or or do you think it was just inevitable? No, it's always been this big. The, The question is how much of it is the legal market versus the illicit markets? I think people have heard me say, my personal opinion is cannabis is about the same size as beer in the United States, about $110 billion a year in revenue. So yeah, we're just following into that. The big opportunity over the next, say between now and 2030, is to pick up that other 30% that right now is in states that just have an illicit market. As those come over, especially if this bill goes through at the federal level, it's really going to be game over for any kind of uh, prohibition on cannabis. Uh, I, I see that by 2030, you know, cannabis is perfectly legal. And as we've seen, you know, people have different opinions, but I don't think we've seen a big increase in crime. I don't think we've seen a big increase in underage use. I think that the markets, Colorado being a mature one, California have shown that we can do this responsibly. Well, you're right. And I, and I think that um, given everything we've seen, you know, the, the, it's hard for people to continue to sit there and scream about the dangers and the horrors of marijuana when we all live in a giant petri dish, right? I mean, we're, we are it. We're the subjects. We're the guinea pigs. And, you know, the human race has been for a long time. And we know the planet, uh, that the plant has been around on the planet for a long time. And that's, I, I you know, I, I, it just still amazes me the, the fervor with which some people come back against it while they sit there drinking their martinis. But, you know, look, it is what it is. And uh, as you've said, Jim, you know, the longer we can keep certain uh, types of businesses out, the better it can be for everybody uh, who's currently operating now. So um, it's certainly something to, to keep following and see where it goes in the future. And uh, no matter what, I think something we can all agree is, is, is very positive and going in a, uh, in a great direction. So this is the point in the show where we would typically swing over and uh, dive headlong into Grateful Dead. And we will today. We're we're both going to be doing a, a bit of a deep dive into Dick's Picks number 40, the uh, Deer Creek shows from 1990, uh, which are famous for a lot of reasons, and uh, we all have some things to say about that. And we also have a, a very strong, uh, I shouldn't say strong, but another deep dive, if you will, into a show played by the boys at the uh, Henry J. Kaiser Center in, in Berkeley in 1985, and you already heard a little bit of the tease at the beginning of the show on that. And there's some great stuff to go along with that as well. Uh, Again, lots of uh, good stories and uh, other things that all of these shows trigger, and we're only too happy to share them with you. However, uh, before we dive into that, I suppose this is what they call in the industry, you know, a uh, stop the presses moment, if you will. Big news, big news. And uh, the best person to deliver this big news uh, is my co-host, co-founder of this show, and uh, a very well-known member of the cannabis industry, Jim. Please go right ahead. Well, I've been working on an exit myself, for myself, with my partners over the last few months. And um, my wife, Maureen, and I will be uh, retiring and moving to Mesquite, Nevada early next year. Uh, We've purchased a house there that's half built. Looking forward to not having winter anymore. I'll be doing some skiing still, but not not in Colorado, most likely uh, 
Lake Tahoe and uh, Utah. So Rob, I'll hopefully see you out there at some point. But yeah, so December 8th will be my last show on the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I feel like I'm leaving it in very good hands with Larry and Rob and our producer, Dan Hummison. So um, yeah, really looking forward to uh, the next stage of our lives. And I'll, I'll be reporting from time to time. Uh, I'll be reporting in January from playing in the sand in Mexico. And on special occasions while I'm attending shows, I'll be glad to come back and chip in my, uh, my two bits. Well, I think, uh, Jim, you know, certainly from our perspective, uh, this is celebratory news because you've reached that stage in life where you can say, take this job and shove it in. Uh, and go out and kind of lead, you know, live your life the way you want to now. Not that I, you know, don't know too many people who, who lived a much better life than you've been living all these years uh, out there in Colorado where you are. But, uh, you know, good for you that you've reached that stage, uh, that you and your wife are ready to take the next step. Certainly celebratory, but bittersweet as well for all of us, I'm sure, for your partners and your, your, your clients who have come to really rely on you over the years. Um, you know, uh, I think I shared Dan's feelings when I say that, you know, you, you were as integral as any of us in uh, getting this whole idea up and running for a, a podcast uh, and really making it work, you know, kind of a, uh, a fate that you and I wound up one day on a, on a, on a podcast with Dan and one of his other shows. Uh, and in the midst of everything, took some time on our own to talk about the Grateful Dead, not knowing that Dan was taping the whole conversation and then turned around and threw it out there to the world. And lo and behold, yep, there's deadheads everywhere. And they want to hear you talk about it. And, uh, uh, you know, certainly with your help and assistance, uh, you know, and your, your knowledge and, uh, and uh, standing in the industry, we've, re we've really been able to take a show uh, from nothing to where it is today, um, you know, and uh, we'll have plenty of time to also uh, talk about all the strong contributions that Rob Hunt has made to moving this show forward as well. Uh, but today is Jim's day, um, and uh, we're very, very happy, Jim, for you. We're happy for everything you've done, and we will certainly miss you and glad you're willing to stay in touch. So let me just say, because Jim won't want to say it out loud himself, so I'll say it for him to our listeners, that um, this isn't just, you know, some guy saying goodbye and hanging up his shingles and walking away. Uh, we haven't really spent a lot of time necessarily, you know, doing deep dives on, on the background of the hosts. And, you know, at some point, maybe down the road, if people are interested enough in anything that Rob and I have done, we can consider doing that. But uh, with Jim departing, this just seems like a natural time to stop and take a look at a guy uh, who's been an accountant for since the early 1980s, uh, who uh, started a CPA firm in Colorado that's now uh, nationwide and probably one of the biggest in the industry, who was one of the first CPAs to sign tax returns for marijuana companies, um, and, you know, who, among other things, happens to have a love of the Grateful Dead and a working knowledge of them, uh, you know, comparable to mine. So the first time that Jim and I met, as soon as we got the marijuana niceties out of the way, uh, it was mostly Grateful Dead from that point on. And uh, it's been a pleasure to do this with you and, and to really, you know, watch you take this up and, 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 and help me bring it along and help Dan bring it along and put it to where it is so we can really run with it and, and, and make some noise. Uh, so what we've asked Jim to do is kind of take his career and break it down for us a little bit into three distinct stages. And we're going we're gonna to share the first one of those today. Uh, we'll share the second one on our show uh, the week after Thanksgiving. And the final one will be our, uh, our final podcast uh, uh, broadcast date for Jim in early December, right? December 8th. So our final podcast for Jim on... December 8th this year. It will be the uh, the final of the three episodes. But uh, I'm going to turn it over to Jim for a few minutes here, and uh, he's going to start off today and give us a little bit of background of uh, uh, becoming a CPA, starting up Bridge West, and uh, you know, kind of looking to tackle the uh, Colorado cannabis market. Jim? Well, I'll keep it relatively short, but I would like to start out by saying you know, how this all got started. We'll go back to the beginning, uh, which was 1982-1983. Uh, my wife and I met in college, and our dream was to get married and move to Colorado, and that's what we did in 1982. And I took a very boring job with a life insurance company here in Denver. Um, very boring, but the exciting part was it was right at that time when PCs, personal computers, were popping up on everybody's desk. And I started to get an idea of, you know, I should go back into public accounting and use these new computers, these PCs, to do tax returns and accounting and bookkeeping. But there was a big Grateful Dead component of it, too. In um, 
September of 1983, the Grateful Dead did three shows at Red Rocks, followed by two shows at Santa Fe Downs. And we did the three shows at Red Rocks and then hopped in our car and headed down to Santa Fe to see the shows there. Um, had a wonderful time, very small, intimate shows at um, Santa Fe Downs, the racetrack, horse racing track. Um, but we had to miss the Sunday show because I had to get back for work on Monday. Well, within six months of that, uh, missing that show, um, we had both quit our jobs and started this business in one bedroom of our house, a small bookkeeping business, and I never missed a Grateful Dead show for work after that. So the Grateful Dead were a big influence on me, but uh, not only because I wanted to go to shows and not worry about drug testing and being to work on Monday, but also I always wanted to be as good of an accountant as they were at music. And I really focused on being a good accountant. I had such good mentors and such good advice from people. And one of my early clients didn't have a high school education, self-made man in uh, machining, technology, or you know, uh, metal stamping and machining. He said, Jim, these guys that hop around from one thing to another all the time, they never get anywhere. You got to do one thing really good and just focus on doing one thing. And that's what I did. And that gentleman's name was Guy Robinson, and his advice helped propel me to where we are today, which is a national CPA firm with over 200 employees. That's my starting story. That's how this got started. Uh, in another week, I'll talk more about the middle, which was 2009 when cannabis got going, and then we'll finish it up with uh, my exit. So that's uh, enough about me. Well, I think that uh, we, we could all say that the Grateful Dead has certainly influenced our careers at some point. So, you know, congratulations, Jim, on taking something that was Grateful Dead related and turning that into a career. For me, it was a fall tour of 1990 before I went to college and met people that offered to send me mail order um, quarter pounds and half pounds of weed and other people that offered to send me mail order half pounds of mushrooms and, you know, maybe some LSD. And suddenly I found myself with a career. Um, it was a, a great way to get through college and... Uh, certainly has propelled me into uh, the cannabis industry years later, where it all started again from, you know, mail orders from Grateful Dead shows. And I think the rest of us can all agree that Rob can speak freely, not understanding the impact when your kids are actually old enough to access social media and do deep dives on their parents. But that's another story for another day. Jim, thank you. That was really fascinating. We will look forward to hearing more about you over the next couple of weeks uh, as you get ready to depart and, uh, and move on. Um, so thank you for that. Now, uh, the stuff that we've been promising all day that's really uh, uh, the fun part of the show, not that the other stuff isn't fun, but who doesn't like talking about the Grateful Dead as much as they can? Uh, we've got two great concerts today, or really three, I suppose, great concerts today to talk about. But we've been, we've been mentioning uh, Dave's Picks number 40, the two Deer Creek shows from July 18th and July 19th, 1990. That was the second year that the dead ever played at Deer Creek. They had played one show in 89. Uh, in uh, 90, it became two shows. And I believe in 91, three shows. Is that right, Rob? Two shows in 91 as well, I believe. I think it was, um, if memory serves me, June 17th and 18th, I think, um, with the Titanic Scarlet Fire on the, on the 17th. Ah, uh, yes. Very nice. It was um, great shows, though. And, uh, I mean, what I like about it is that not only is it great shows, not only were I at both of these shows, it's always fun when they release a show that I was at, but these are great examples of the Grateful Dead, I think, at their finest in the summer of 1990. And everybody talks about the spring tour of 1990 kind of being the, you know, quote-unquote last great tour, and that's been released by the Dead in a couple of box sets already. But this show is... Uh, just a fantastic example of, of where they're at and what they're doing. For me to be able to listen to it was, you know, a real throwback and really a lot of fun. Just great examples. Rob, I, I don't think you were at these shows, were you? No, I wasn't. I didn't see my first Deer Creek show until uh, until 93. And by the way, I was wrong. The 91 shows were on June 6th and 7th, not not the 17th and 18th. But no, I, I saw Deer Creek a handful of times, but, uh, but missed it in 90 and missed it in 91. That's my first show I saw... In 91 was just after the Deer Creek shows, and I think it was RFK on 614 was the first show I caught that summer tour, and then I caught the rest of the summer tour that year. Excellent. I wasn't at the 91 shows either because my oldest son, who's now married, was about to be born, and my wife didn't think it was a good idea for me to drive down to Indy, and I don't blame her. But these, these 90s shows are just really, really killer. Jim, you've listened to it pretty extensively, I know as well. What are your thoughts on it? What are your, what are your high points for these shows? 
Oh, I've been enjoying the heck out of it. Um, I believe they started out with a Help Slip Franks and on, D, on CD1 and wonderful, beautiful, brings tears to your eyes, Terrapin Station. Jerry's so solid. 1990, he only had five years left to live, but his playing and his singing is very strong on, on Dave's Picks 40. And I'm really enjoying, I've always enjoyed it, especially this version of Desolation Row. I've been checking out the lyrics and pulling them up, and there's actually 10 verses to that song. Now, on this Dick's Picks 40, I don't think they do all 10 verses, but it's 10 verses with an um, with a reprise as well. So it's, it's even more verses than that. And of course, I should have said chorus, not reprise. So, um, yeah, I've done some background history on that song. It actually first appeared on Bob Dylan's Highway 66 Revisited in 1964. So it's an old Bob Dylan song. And uh, Bob does a great job with it. I don't know how he remembers all those lyrics, you know, but uh, without a teleprompter. But I don't think they had teleprompters in 1990. So uh, great four-disc set. Enjoying the heck out of it. I've listened to it several times out in my barn the last week or so. Well, that's wonderful. And I agree. I, every, I pretty much agree with everything you said. It's, it is a, uh, a wonderful show. The Desolation Row is amazing. Um, you know, Dylan just wrote that kind of stuff and the dead love to play it. But yes, our, our constant joke that entire summer on tour was, how does Bob Weir forget the words to truckin'? but remembers all the words to Desolation Row or stuck inside a mobile with these Memphis blues again or uh, 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 Queen Jane approximately or Ballad of a Thin Man. And he sang all of them and he sang all of them really well. You're right. They did not have teleprompters in 1990, um, but he, he, he nailed those. And, uh, you know, Jerry played them beautifully and they were, they were really, really fun to listen to. My takeaway from these shows, and I think it, it, it makes a great comparison for what we're going to see with the Kaiser show that we're going to talk about in a minute, is that both nights of these shows, they, they were so big, so tremendous in how well they played that it's hard to remember that both of them were only two songs post-Space, right? The, the first night they went into the other one and then into a, a strong morning dew that closed out the show with the weight as the encore. And then the second night they came out of the space into a killer all along the watchtower into a beautiful black Peter, not fade away. Actually, they had three songs that night, not fade away. They left the... Uh, the final encore off for some reason, which it took me a little while to figure that out. But do you remember what the encore was that night, Rob? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Uh, the encore that night was U.S. Blues. U.S. Blues. Well, maybe that's why they left it off. Not that there's anything wrong with U.S. Blues, but they probably got about 50 copies of it out there. Jim? One more comment I would have is, and I don't know if they did it as a tribute to Brent Midland, but he's really turned up in the mix. So you're really getting a very good, uh, clean uh, keyboard sound, big Hammond B3 sound out of his organ, uh, very strong in the mix. Well, it's interesting that you point out Brent Midland because not to stray away entirely from this show yet, we're not going to, uh, but one of the things that makes these shows so special was that they were two of uh, Brent's final five shows. Uh, after Deer Creek, they went on to uh, Tinley Park to do uh, the, the end of the summer tour and play three shows there. And um, you know, we, we've spent quite a t bit of time talking about Tinley Park in the past. Uh, any uh, listeners who would like to go back and hear our full stories about Tinley Park are invited to go back to our episode number 112, which was titled Brent Midland Out With a Bang. And uh, we did focus quite a bit on Brent that night and as well as uh, some of the pros and cons, mostly cons of seeing shows down in Tinley Park. Due to the nature of those shows and the overall general kind of negative vibe that went along with it, a lot of people really point to these two Deer Creek shows as, you know, the last two really, really strong, good, beautiful Brent shows. And it would be hard to argue with that. You know, I, I do recall Brent playing, you know, some nice tunes at uh, Tinley Park and, you know, playing like he always did. Uh, but it was, you know, there was too many other things going on. These nights in Deer Creek, we were totally all about the music and, uh, and, and they were right on, especially Brent. And uh, it's great that you mentioned that, Jim, because people should really, if you're going to listen to these shows, and you should, uh, you should really be focusing in on Brent Midland. I don't know about you, Rob, and I know, once again, we talked about this in Brent Midland Out With a Bang back in episode 112, but it just seems such a shame that almost cosmic, you know, bad luck, if you will, that these shows exemplifying, not only was Brent part of the band, he's leading the band at this point. You know, he's he's as much out there in front as anybody uh, and he's picking the tunes and he's belting them out and he's supporting Jerry and Jerry's got new life and everything. 
and then he's not there anymore, and then he's gone. And all, all you have to do is listen to a blowaway from 1990. You know, if uh, if you listen to any of the last like ten blowaways that he played, those are are so on fire and so you know. It's finally, like Brent kind of like came into his own, where he never, no longer felt like the new guy, and was absolutely crushing as a frontman. And it wasn't just you know blowaway. He had you know four songs on the most recent album. Uh, you know, he had probably at least one or two songs that he was singing almost every night. Um, so you know, pretty strong, um, pretty strong presence by Brent in 1990, and uh, and that was also you know he's still sung on quite a few other songs as duets and still sung you know a lot of back uh, back up vocals on things, and uh, you know it, it started to get to be the point where you know it wasn't just a Garcia solo in a song it was a Garcia solo into a Midland solo and then back into a Garcia solo, so if there's one thing that kind of like you know tongue in cheek I joked about after Brent passed. When people say, is there anything you know you really like about Vince? My answer was, yeah, I just get a lot more pure Jerry. <laughs> I just get a lot longer Garcia jams, uh, you know. But uh, he was just such a great presence, you know. It was really sad to lose him, you know, kind of at the peak of his power. I think you're right. And and, and it can't be underestimated. And, and, you know, I think you really hit the nail on the head that the, you know, the way that it wasn't just his tunes, it's the way that he finally found his place in everybody else's songs. And he had, you know, he had been singing these songs for a number of years, but I think he had gotten to a point where he felt strong enough about himself that on the Jerry tunes, on Althea, on uh, any one of these songs, you know, he just goes off and plays it and just brings something that's really, really special and, and unique. He's, he's such a key component of their version of The Weight uh, you know, that it's just wonderful to be able to hear him and, you know, in, in all of these things, you know, I love his, um, uh, you know, the give and take that he always had with Bobby uh, in uh, Feel Like a Stranger, although I don't think they played that in these two shows, but he was a great backup for Bobby on Picasso Moon, which they do play. And uh, yeah, all of this stuff. And, and Brent Brent was missed, you know, was loved then, missed now, always will be. But these shows are just really, really special. And for folks like me who were, you know, 1990 was already for me representing almost the the beginning of the back end of the dead run, which of course did end in 95. But by that point, I had already seen who knows how many shows. I had been on the road seeing them since 1983. I had graduated from law school, had a job, got married. Without kids, still had the flexibility to run around and catch shows, but uh, with work, not quite as much flexibility as I would have liked. So to be able to dash out and catch shows like these and not just to be able to see the dead, but have them be such tremendous shows and, and really just at the top of their game musically, uh, you know, made it all. It was, it was one of those where you'd get there and you'd say to yourself about two songs in, how did I ever even think for a minute that I wasn't going to come to this, right? What, what what else could I possibly have had that would have kept me away from this that would have been worthwhile not being here right now hearing this music? And these shows do not disappoint. Well, it should be also noted that, you know, for all the people that talk about this as being the tail end of the Grateful Dead, it, it's pretty much midway in the career of, um, of, you know, Bobby or of Phil. You know, if you look at how much they've done since then, 1990 represents basically just the center moment from the time they started in 65 until where we are today. It, it, we always think about that as being like towards the end, but it's not. It's, it's actually smack dab in the middle for, uh, for most of these musicians. That's an excellent point. You're absolutely right. And I think it's important for us to think of them as, you know, separate musicians while also part of the dead, which is why you can go see Dead & Co. without Phil and enjoy it, but you can go see Phil uh, playing with his bands. And no matter which one of these guys you're seeing or how they're doing it, they, it, it's still constantly reinterpretation of Grateful Dead music. And this is what David Gans talked with us about, you know, which makes it so wonderful to see. But it's true. You're, you're absolutely right. I guess maybe to say uh, towards the end of the band known as the Grateful Dead would might be more appropriate. Um, but but of course, you're right. They, they all played on and of the Garcia era, even better. I like that. Just quickly about Phil. Yeah, Phil never wanted to, he didn't even want to take the first hiatus back in the 70s. And even when the road got very rocky, 94, 95, he had no intention of taking a hiatus or having the Grateful Dead take a break at all. He always loved it. He always said the Grateful Dead was his band. He never even sat in with other bands. Uh, so anyway, that's my, I'm a big Phil fan. So those are my Phil two bits. So, yeah, for, for everyone out in the audience, you know, sometimes you guys probably wonder how, you know, we pick our subject matter for each week. And, you know, oftentimes you'll probably see a theme that if it's, you know, a band member's birthday or if there's, you know, an a, a album got dropped on a certain date, you know, sometimes we do it based on, you know, a show that was played around that date. But we try not to do, you know, sort of this day in Grateful Dead history the way they do on Sirius. But we do try to pick something that's topical based on the date that we're, you know, recording the show or that we're, you know, broadcasting the show. 
So that oftentimes means we have to try to figure out which one to pick and which one's going to be you know exciting to talk about. And so today, as you heard in the intro, you know we played a little bit of the uh, the, the "Give Me Some Lovin'," which, by the way, just throwing it out there, was a song that uh, Steve Winwood was 17 years old on when he was playing keyboards on that song, which is just absolutely insane to think about how good a musician he was then. But from uh, the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center in Oakland, California, on 11:21, uh, 1985, I, I picked this show today because. I can't think of another show out there. When we think about the Grateful Dead as a blues band and we think about the homage they pay to some of the great blues musicians, I can't think of another show out there that hits so many of the great bluesmen in one show with a, a Big Boy Pete you know, on it, which is a, um, a song originally by the Olympics, I think, put it out there. But then you also have a Little Red Rooster, which is a, a Willie Dixon tune. And you've got uh, In the Midnight Hour, which is a Wilson Pickett tune. And you've got Walking the Dog on this one, which is um, a song by Rufus Thomas. You know, these are all some of the great bluesmen of the old days that, you know, probably don't get really all that much recognition. But here's the Grateful Dead picking out four of them and putting them into one show. On top of having a bunch of other pretty cool covers like Me and My Uncle, which most people I don't think realize was written by John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. And then, you know, obviously your, your standard Dylan covers. And on this night they chose to play uh, She Belongs to Me. And, you know, the uh, Spencer Davis group with Give Me Some Lovin'. So a really, really fun show of covers on top of a lot of their own staples. But really interesting simply because of like the hardcore like 1950s, 60s blues element to it. I agree. It's, it represents a period with the Grateful Dead. I think, you know, again, when they were, were, were playing very, very strong, this was, you know, coming on the heels of their 20th anniversary shows uh, at um, uh, the Greek Theater, which we've talked about on earlier episodes. And, you know, they were just in peak form. They loved the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center during that period of time. It was a place where they they often went. I'm sorry that I never had a chance to see them there. Uh, But that's a building that's rich in Grateful Dead history in terms of of big shows. But, you know, what I I love about this show is the way they pull some of these tunes out of nowhere. Big Boy Pete is a tune that they had played in the uh, mid to late 60s with Pigpen and Jerry doing a lot of singing on it. Then it kind of disappeared. I think it popped up once, I want to say, in 1978 at a show, and then it popped up at this show. And after this show, I don't think they ever played it again. So, of course, from, from a deadhead, you know, nerd perspective, right, the first question is, why hadn't they been playing it? But maybe even more importantly, what compelled them to play it? And then if they went to all the trouble to remember how to play it, to play it for this night, why didn't they just throw it back in? But, of course, that's the beauty of the dead and why, you know, you miss a show, you miss a lot. So... People were always loath to miss shows uh, if it could at all be avoided. But I just think that that's, uh, you know, just that's such an amazing example of of them, you know, really playing and having a little fun. And, and don't forget, we've talked about this too at the uh, at the at the uh, 20th anniversary shows. Uh, they broke out "That's It" for the other one, uh, as well as uh, "She Belongs to Me," which I think is one they they play in this show, and we're going to talk about in a minute. So a lot of these songs that we're seeing in this show uh, had just been brought, uh, they, had, they had just broken them back out for the first time. But you know, for me, this is great. And just to, by way of comparison, we were talking about the Dick's Pick Show, uh, Dave's Pick Shows, excuse me, and how much energy and, and dynamic they were. Even though, you know, in terms of uh, set lists, they were somewhat short, with you know only a post uh, two uh, two song post space in both of them, three songs I guess in the other one. You know, here, boy, the Dead came out of space into the other one into Warfrat into her playing in the band reprise, back into Gimme Some Lovin', into In the Midnight Hour, you know, before finally ending the show with a tremendous cover of Walk in the Dog, which apparently was a favorite tune for them in the, in the mid-1980s, but again, I, one I never caught. But, you know, to me, Rob, those, those, those shows where it, it wasn't that I didn't appreciate the, the power and the energy of what we saw at Deer Creek Post Space and in those relatively short kind of mini sets. But with these shows, like uh, Henry Kaiser, it, it almost becomes irrelevant what they're playing once you realize, oh, my God, they're, they're really rocking tonight. They're not stopping. They're, they're going on another song and, and now another song. And as a deadhead, you know, if you were having a good night, Oh my goodness, there was nothing better in the world than to realize you just happened to be there on a night when Jerry had a Jones and the energy to, you know, to sit around and, and not only play a long time, but to play great songs and, and to play them really well. I, I think we have a, a, a musical clip here. Rob, can you give us the intro to that? Yeah, I think we're going to listen to a little bit of the Big Boy Pete. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the tune, um, Big Boy Pete's really written in sort of the same style as what you expect to hear from like a Jim Croce tune, like a uh, Bad Leroy Brown or uh, You Don't Mess Around with Jim, where it's kind of the, uh, the 
the story of the uh, of the tough guy getting his comeuppance, you know, and uh, Big Boy Pete is is the one that's the protagonist, I think, in this song. So, Dan, why don't you uh, cue that one up for us? Okay, so here's my first comment, if I can just dive in and tell me what you think about this. And I recognize that this is probably a, uh, uh, an official recording, not, a, not an audience tape. You know, we've listened to some earlier shows, right, where the dead break out something and, and the roar from the crowd is so deafening that even on an uh, official tape, you can still hear the crowd roaring. And, you know, I, I listened for that on this song, and you don't really get it too much. And I think that that really just speaks to the true rarity, so rare that, you know, the people who might jump on most, oh my God, they've pulled out such and such. I think for some of them, you know, and it's the first song in the show and everybody's just kind of showing up. I think it might've just gone right past them. Rob, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, obviously it doesn't have the same cachet as sort of like the breakouts of a, you know, old 1960s, early 1970s, you know, Grateful Dead song that had been played so many times that was beloved the way like a Here Comes Sunshine or a Dark Star would be when they break it out. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, it's, I'm sure there's an appreciation, but I just think it had a bit more obscurity that was attached to it to uh, on this breakout. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, but I, I will tell you right now that I'm basically that guy who wants to hear them play a song they've only played one other time, you know? I mean, to me, it's like, look, there's nothing special about me. I can't explain how you're in the house the night when they play this breakout or that breakout. You know, you're just, if you're meant to be there, if you're just lucky to be there. But, you know, to, to, you know, you talk about nerding out on Grateful Dead stuff and, you know, to be, wow, we just heard a song that they've played twice since 1969. You know, and prior to that, maybe they only played it a handful of times. Jim, what do you think? Well, my comment is what a great encyclopedia of American music the Grateful Dead all introduced us all to. I mean, to be exposed to all those great artists in one night um, and a little bit of history, of course, Pigpen's father had the radio sh- uh, blues station in Oakland, giving the Grateful Dead access to a huge repertoire and records uh, of great American blues artists. That's where songs like From Willie Dixon came from. The other piece of that is, you know, when the Grateful Dead played in New York City, Jerry loved going to all the old record stores and, and music stores and looking at that sheet music and buying sheet music of Amer- American history, different blues and jazz artists that he put into his repertoire turned up in a lot of the Jerry Garcia band shows. So that's a little bit of the background and history of how the Grateful Dead were exposed to all that great American music. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, on this one, there's very few things where I can think of, or very few songs I can think of, where Jerry and Bob truly sing it as a duet. It almost never happens. You get like the, the intro and the outro of Jack Straw, you get the, uh, the last verse of Promised Land, you know, there's a couple places where, where they sing together, you know, for a verse or half a verse. But, you know, Big Boy Pete was pretty much the entire song. They had a couple places where one person sung than the other. But for the most part, it was a, it was a full duet. And the other thing I'll say about this tune is that, much like you just said, Jim, I, I would never have been exposed to these guys. We've talked about it before, you know, sort of the canon of music that I know in American music is largely shaped by the fact that I'd listen to a Grateful Dead song and be like, you know, who sung that? And... You know, you go back and listen to the Olympics album that the song is on, which is called Doing the Hully Gully, and it's got just some great blues staples. I would have never, ever pulled that one out if it hadn't been for uh, for the Grateful Dead. And obviously, like, you know, you get a lot more of that with the better-known artists they've covered, like the Merle Haggards and the Johnny Cashes and, you know, some of the other, obviously, the, you know, Dylan. But a lot of the old blues guys, you know, I would have never, ever known who Wilson Pickett was. I would have never known who Willie Dixon was. I would have never known who, you know, a lot of these guys were but for, you know, the love of... of classic American blues that, you know, I learned about through either the Rolling Stones or through the Grateful Dead. Yes, and it lets us go down those roads and, and explore that kind of music and, and listen to other Willie Dixon songs or other Wilson Pickett songs or listen to Miles Davis or John Coltrane because, you know, the Grateful Dead piqued our interest. So now we can go, go down and, and, and look those people up. Well, you're right. And for me, what I always, you know, crack up about is I hear these songs and now I associate them with the Grateful Dead. So when I was at the Phil shows uh, the first night when they went in the middle of the Dear Mr. Fantasy and broke into Miles Davis's So What, 
I turned to my buddy and I'm like, oh my God, this is from, you know, such and such, whatever Jerry's, whatever Jerry's album with David Grisman or whichever one it was on where they, they start off playing So What? And the guy next to us laughed. He goes, you know, it is a Miles Davis song. I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, my exposure to it is through the Grateful Dead. That happened to me one night with Smokestack Lightning and I was talking to somebody and I'm like, and now I've gone and I've listened to a lot of the music of these other artists, but I, it, it's just funny. I, you know, that I, I see it through this lens almost of, you know, my exposure to it is from the dead. So I, I like to think of it as a dead tune, even though it's clearly not, but they play it really well. Yeah, and then, then you, you know, talk about the classics and you guys both mentioned it earlier, going back to, to Bob Dylan, you know, Highway, Highway 61 Revisited, you know, such a classic Dylan album, and obviously the song that gets the most attention on that album was Like a Rolling Stone, which, you know, still goes down as probably the most famous song ever written as a, a rock and roll tune. But if you actually think about, you know, the fact that Dead or Jerry Band never covered that, but they did cover, you know, most of their songs on that album. They covered It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry, they did Ballad of a Thin Man a couple times, Queen Jane was a staple, uh, Tom Thumb's Blues was a staple, Desolation Row was a staple. That's, you know, over half the album that the Grateful Dead covered from just that one album. But I will tell you that I've seen Phil's band cover like a Rolling Stone a couple of times. In fact, the first time I saw him do it was the first time I saw the quintet years ago, whatever, you know, whatever year that was, 2002 or three. And they opened the show that night with like a Rolling Stone into Low Spark of High Heeled Boys. It is, it, 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 it's, it's a great tune. And, and then I, I saw one of the other combinations with Phil, I think also did, uh, they've played uh, Mr. Tambourine Man a couple of times. Well, it's funny you just now mentioned three Steve Winwood tunes as well. Between "Give Me Some Lovin," had a couple others we we, we covered tonight. "Low Spark" is one because that's that's Winwood, right? And then there was uh, one other one that we mentioned earlier as well. "Give Me Some Lovin'." Yeah. Well, look, the thing about Stevie Winwood is that you can't have a conversation about rock and roll without. I mean, we could we could do three episodes on Dylan. We could do three episodes, four episodes on Stevie Winwood. I mean, we could talk about these guys all day, and and you know. Ultimately, what I really love more than anything else about listening to all these other, or, or excuse me, the Grateful Dead playing their music is it, it helps me understand what music formed the basis for the creations that Garcia and Weir and all these guys came up with. You know, it, it, it's not just that we've been exposed to this, it's that they're exposing us to the music that inspired them. Yeah. I mean, and Dear Mr. Fancy was the other one I was thinking of. But if I were to think about who, like, the classic, you know, original jam band artists are, like the ones that influenced the Grateful Dead style of music, Can't Find My Way Home was probably, like, one of the original, true, stretched-out jam band songs that, you know, they were playing for 20, 25 minutes long as a song back in the late 60s. I can't think of too many other bands that were doing that then when the trend at that time was three, three and a half minutes and out. And this is before, like, you know, Led Zeppelin was doing Stairway and the Eagles were doing Hotel California. This was, you know, like truly like the first time where you're getting these extended, super long jams that were happening, um, you know, with some of the English rockers. Well, except for two things. One, I always think of with the extended long jams, Iron Butterfly and Agata Davida, which just seemed to go on forever. And, and I don't know if that counts or not, but I remember that one just playing on and on and on. And, and the Velvet Underground at that time uh, were, were already, uh, you know, playing tunes that they were but just... But that's because Lou Reed's the coolest motherfucker that ever walked the earth. Well, that's a whole other story, but I just don't, I don't, I don't want that to be lost in all of this either, that, uh, you know, that they were, uh, you know, they were just taking tunes and jamming the hell out of them. And so, yeah, it was a great way of music, you know, all right going on at that time. And, you know, these are all classic people who were doing it. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. So anyway, that was you know sort of the reason and the rationale behind uh, looking at the Henry J. Kaiser. For, but for all of you out there that haven't listened to it, uh, it is a fun one all the way through. And it does have you know a couple of rock and Grateful Dead classics, as, you know, including uh, the Shakedown second set opener that just fires. So you know, do yourself a favor, and uh, if you want to get down with some old blues through the Grateful Dead, that's a great one to start with. And Rob, am I correct that there's also uh, people can find a video of that show? Yeah, yeah, it's on YouTube, so you know you can see the entire thing, which is great because like all the time, there's more and more Grateful Dead that's uploaded onto YouTube. Where I'm like, oh, I've never seen that one before. Like, like for instance, I'd never seen you know the um, the the ten sixteen eighty nine we bid you goodnight encore from um, from Brendan Byrne until maybe like you know six months ago and someone posted that and I was like oh wow that's you know fantastic so there's there's definitely a lot of really good stuff out there that's being uploaded all the time you just have to poke around for it just got to poke around I agree absolutely so it's just really classic Grateful Dead uh, at two very distinctly different periods of time for them. 
but I guess not really that distinctly different because it's already the kind of the middle and the end of the Brent era. But uh, if you listen to the two, I think you'll be able to also hear what we're talking about about in, in the Dick's picks number Dave's picks number forty, where Brent just really uh, is now you know asserting himself up on the stage. So even if for that reason, uh, very very good to talk, to, uh, very very good to listen to. I think that's all I got for today. Jim, anything else from you? No, uh, great show. Uh, like you said, we could devote whole shows to some of these records we talked about. The other thing that I wanted to say is uh, everybody to keep listening because we will have continuations of the uh, Jim Marty story as we move through uh, uh, the last couple of episodes of here on the show. We have uh, are still working on lining up our guests who are going to tell us the inside story of the uh, Grateful Dead Bar Mitzvah show in St. Louis in 1971. And uh, we got another couple of other really good stories in the works. So please make sure that you pay attention to all of that. We've been talking a lot about the dead. We've been talking a lot about Dylan. Uh, So I'm going to hand it over to Rob to do the sign out and let him kind of cue us up on this this outro music we're going to be listening to that touches on both of those. So everyone have a great week. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly, Rob. Yeah, and before I do, one quick thing to, to all of you guys. First of all, Jim, you know, we're going to miss you. Number two is, uh, you know, for all of you that use archive.org and really listen to your music, get your music from there, obviously there's a lot of other places you can listen to Grateful Dead, either nugs.net or, you know, re-listen or some of the others. But, you know, absolutely contribute to archive, archive.org if you can. But archive.org does a great service to all of us, you know, much like Wikipedia. They're um, they're only done through donations. So if you do get a chance, you know, I highly recommend making a small donation to keep that great um, service alive, so we can all enjoy more Grateful Dead as well as you know hundreds of other bands that you know post their music up there. Uh, they just need a little bit of extra cash for data um, and for storage. So you know, please do that. Uh, I'd also want to say to all of our listeners, have a really happy, healthy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you on the other side as we go into this holiday season. So we'll leave you with a nice mellow outro, uh, a little bit more Bob Dylan, which you know, f- for those of you who like the, the, the Dylan ballads, which you know I certainly do, uh, "She Belongs to Me," which was really only played in the 1980s, and you know, primarily from I think about 85 to 88. It's a terrific one. It's beautiful lyrics and uh, a really nice way to kind of end a show. So we'll see you all next week. And uh, thanks so much to Dan Hummiston, our producer, and to Larry and Jim. This is Rob Huff, Rob Hunt signing off from uh, Linnea Holdings in Carlsbad, California. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.